Well, it is me again, and I am going to let those of you in Kidmo go. I guess there were a bunch of them out there. I guess they uh, ditched early. Um, well, we are glad that you're here. If you're a guest, um, I'm glad that you're here today. Uh, today we're talking about love and marriage. Um, if you're not married, I'm glad you're here today. And if you are married, I'm glad you're here today, because what you're going to find is what we're talking about today um, is not simply for people who are married, but um, when we begin to understand what marriage is, we begin to understand part of what the point of life is. And if some of you are already thinking, well, I've heard this before, the point of life is to get married. That is not the point, um, of, is to get married. The point um, that we're going to get to, I'll share with you as we get to it. I appreciate Kim um, reading that, our worship team, for leading us in worship. Uh, and as we enter into this, uh, two weeks ago when we started Friending, we talked about the reality that we were created for community, uh, that we ourselves uh, are made with a component that is meant to have relationships in it. Not just that we know people, but we have deep meaningful, life-sharing relationships uh, with each other. And life, when we don't have those things, feels like it goes horribly wrong because there was something built into each of us that we're supposed to experience that. Now today when we, we talk about a, something like marriage, we typically will come and we'll, we'll be thinking about, well, what are the day-to-day activities and you know, how do we live with each other and um, what happens when we argue or how do we keep the romance alive? And that's not really the direction I want to take today. Today I want to talk about what is God really trying to get us to learn? Because marriage, like other things in life, is meant to teach us certain things, but also give us opportunities to do life together. But there's a specific message that the Bible gives us about marriage, that when we fully embrace it, it not only changes our marriage, it changes our lives. And here's the neat thing, when we fully embrace it, it also, it just makes everything else in life and every other relationship that we have better. But I will tell you that what I'm going to share with you today in, in large part is one of the reasons that people reject Christianity. Now, I know that I've got you curious now, and I'm, so I want to walk you through this, and, but I want you to know there's going to be, for some of you, some trigger words in here, and I want you to hang out with me for a bit because we need to do some redefining. We need to talk about what this means, and ultimately what we're going to have to do is discover that, that this idea of a relationship in marriage is actually a demonstration of a relationship between God and the church. And what does that mean for us? So we're going to try to unpack all that, and we're going to try to do all of that in a culture that doesn't really see marriage in the way that we're going to talk about it. Doesn't really see relationships in the way that we're going to talk about this. Um, when we think about marriage today, and we think about love today, one of the, the primary things that we're interested in is, am I attracted to you and how do I feel about you? But as we walk through this, I want you to understand that love in Scripture is way more than how we feel or any kind of attraction. Our, our culture is so messed up that we have shows that are incredibly popular like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. And here two people are supposed to determine, are we... Are we destined to be together? And here's what we'll do. We'll hang out here in this place for a month and you make out with everybody here and if you like me the best, we'll get married later or maybe we will. Crazy shows like that that, are, that we just eat that kind of stuff up. But it's such a 
distortion of what this relationship is supposed to be. Or I remember when the very uh, first wife swap came out and I thought, this is nuts. I mean, it ended up being a pretty, just a bad show in general, but um, but the premise wasn't quite what it sounded like when it first came out. But first, it, still, it was just like, that. What? what is this? Our culture views relationships in a very selfish, selfish way. And so as we enter into this, I want us to remember a few things. Number one, I want us to remember that we were made for community. And community is found in a place like this. Community is found in your neighborhood. Community is found at work or in your school. Community is found in the family and in marriage. Community is found with your best friends. Um, We are made for that kind of community to be a part of our lives. So how do we get to this thing where if we follow the way of Jesus, it's supposed to make things better, but sometimes it honestly feels like it makes it worse. How do we deal with all of those things? And I want us to remind us and, and, and really, this is a good reminder, no matter what you're studying, whether it's theology or doctrine or something practical, or what do I do about my marriage, or what do I do about my job, when we, when we distill all of the teachings of Scripture down into its most base components, Jesus sums it up for us in this, that the whole point of everything that you have ever heard about Yahweh and then about Jesus is that you would develop a way of living life in which you are loving God and you are loving each other as you love yourself. We can distill it all down into that. Now, certainly there are different things that we tend to focus on and different parts that we think are important. And what about discipleship and holiness? And yeah, all of that wraps into loving God and loving others. So as we enter into this conversation, I want us to do that as well. And I specifically wanted our scripture, we we actually read, I told Kim, we, we read this last week, but we didn't get to the sermon last week. So we had a great conversation about disaster relief with Ken and Rick. But uh, I, I told Kim I want to do it again because this passage is so important to remember what we're entering into. Because for some of you, when I say we're going to talk about marriage in the context of Ephesians 5, that may raise the hair on the back of some people's necks already. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will in, in just a minute. So let's dive in. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 5. Um, and then if you want to follow along on version, notes are there. There are some links for different things. If you're a guest, we'd love for you to let us know you were here. Um, we, we don't uh, bug you to death, but we would like to just say thank you for joining us. Is there anything we can do for you? Um, but we're going to start um, with the fact that the most basic calling to, Christ- to Christians, whether they are married or not, is to love God and to love others like yourself. That's that next slide, um, Jeremy. And then what I also want to do is I want to do a little bit of redefining of the word love. Because love can mean a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people. So when we begin thinking about uh, what is love in kind of a modern, next, let's do this, look at this next slide. When we look at um, from a modern Western world, typically love, especially in the relationship uh, of marriage, is boiled down to either a feeling or an attraction. So when you see a couple together and they say, we're in love, what do you generally think of? Like they don't hate each other, right? I mean, they they enjoy being together. They're attracted to each other. I mean, they just, they feel good around each other. And honestly, when we use that phrase and we say something like we're in love, that's probably what we honestly mean. And in our culture, that's very normal that that's the way we would describe love. But as we've done... 
you know, a lot over this, these last couple of years as we redefine these words back to what they were intended to mean from the author and the intended audience. In, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, love is less feeling and more action. And that action is a very specific action. It's not like there are five things you do if you're going to love someone. You know, you, there are all kinds of books out there that will give you those lists. But in an ancient Near Eastern culture, love is an action that leads to the well-being of someone else. Which again, even that definition is open to a whole lot of interpretation. Well, what is the well-being of someone else? See, this, this definition of love gives us the opportunity to say, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm committed to you, but I'm not necessarily going to go all the places you want me to go with you. And so um, for the well-being, you know, for, for just an easy example, let's say, um, and, and this has happened, a friend of mine um, who I know struggles with addiction to alcohol wants me to go to have drinks with him. Would you come have drinks with me? Well, there are some that would say the loving thing would be for me to go have drinks with him. And typically my response is yes, if it's coffee. (laughs) I'll go have coffee with you. But if you want me to go have a different kind of drink and you want me to have way too many drinks and that will make you feel more comfortable, I'm not going to do that. I can still love him and not do the thing he wants me to do. So, but then that comes into my interpretation of what his well-being is. So I recognize that even at the end of this today, you may walk out of here with a little bit different understanding of how you're supposed to practice this. But if you're married, you should walk out of here with a different way to think about your marriage. And if you're not married, you should be thinking a different way about dating. And if you're not dating or married and you don't care about either one of them, you should also walk out of here in a different way of thinking about people and church and work. Do you see where I'm going with this? All right, not yet, maybe. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 20. Let's go to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Well, that's all that needs to be said, isn't it? (laughs) Right off the bat, we come into what Paul's talking about here. And let's, let's be honest, Paul can get himself into a lot of hot water. There are whole swaths of Scripture we ignore because we misunderstand what they're saying, and so we assume the the absolute worst interpretation, and so we ignore them. I just want to say right up front, we're going to be talking a lot about submission today. One of the reasons I wanted Kim to read the passage that she read and what I want you to keep in your mind as we go through this conversation, what what does verse 21 say? Will anyone, does anyone remember? Submit one to another. So I want us to enter into this verse 22, remembering verse 21, who has just said we are to submit one to another before he ever talks about submission in marriage. But I also want to do this. I I just want to, to say and put out there that this is a widely misunderstood, misrepresented, and abused verse among Christian men. And so as we enter into this, I want you to be bringing all of those thoughts And I want you to bring all those things you heard when you were a kid. I remember when I first started pastoring, actually not even then, I was on the tail end. There was a time when you would get married and commonly in the vows it would be that the wife would obey her husband. 
I've actually never had that. I never did that even when I was first starting out. But there's a this is, verse has been abused in a lot of ways, and I want to recognize that. I want to I want you to know that. But I also don't want to miss what Paul is saying because what Paul is saying here is part of the point of life. So let's keep going. Mark sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Let's keep going. Wives, submit your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The thing that stands out and the issues that often stand out in this particular passage are are really, I think, two things, value and role. And when we read into Ephesians chapter 5, value and role, it's very easy to see why it's been so abused and misused and misunderstood and propagated for year after year after year that men will come in thinking a wife's value comes through me and at the end of the day submission means that uh, whatever i want i get now you would have to do some incredible uh, theological gymnastics to read anything else in scripture and come to that conclusion that this is what paul's talking about or you have to like a lot of people do completely discount paul and say he's a heretic he does not know the teachings of Jesus. But there are many places in the scriptures that over the years they've been taken and twisted and warped to benefit a group of people. But if we understand who's writing it, who and who they're writing it to, it ought to change the way we understand what's being said. Now, while we can take something from most any scripture that's in here, the reality is is that that scripture is not written to you and it's not written to me. This is a letter Paul's writing to a specific church and we're not members of that church. (laughs) He wrote it at a specific time and we were not alive at that time. He wrote it into a specific culture and our culture is not that culture. There are differences and one of the things we have to do is understand what is the culture in which Paul is addressing because it may make a difference in the way we understand what he's saying. Some of the big questions that come out of this are simply this. Who submits? And what does it look like? What does that submission look like? Who loves? Who respects? Who's the head? What is headship even? Does headship mean that Only one person in a marriage, only the husband in a marriage should be able to make a decision. My dad, we were were preparing things. There are things about my dad I didn't know until we were preparing his funeral. And um, one of the things my dad used to do was uh, back in the day, which was before I was born, back in the day, there was a time that women could not own a credit card. The only way you could have a credit card was if your husband 
um, signed for you and you got to have a credit card. And that flew all over my dad uh, because there would be all kinds of moms and women who, whose husbands, I mean, just were absent. Um, and they just, they were stuck. And, but there was a plan that he could use through his uh, dental practice in which you could get a medical credit card, which would establish credit to allow you to get a separate credit card outside of having to get it through your husband. Well, I had no idea. I'd never heard of that before. And I was so proud of my dad that he did that at a time when that was not only, it wasn't popular, it just wasn't done. So we look at this kind of mentality and we can see lots of abuses that have happened over the years. And when we think about headship, we've got to come to some agreement of, of what does that mean and what does that look like for us and how do we live this out? Ephesians chapter 5 is where this passage comes from. But if we drop back up to, a, to verse 1 and we ask who is supposed to love in this scenario, in the passage we just said, we just read, it's the husband, right? Husband loves the wife respects, right? But if we drop up just a few verses later or earlier, we find what Paul's talking about and actually addressing in this whole passage. He says in verse 1, he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So let me just ask you in the introduction of this chapter, who is supposed to love? Anyone can answer this. Everyone. So everyone's supposed to love, and the, the general consensus of what it means to follow the way or this new way of knowing Jesus is just that everyone is supposed to love, and then we come to a passage and Paul says, now wives, you're supposed to love your husband, and husbands, you're supposed to, res- or, or you're supposed to, wives, you're supposed to respect your husband, and husbands, you're supposed to love your wife. It's very easy to just literally take a proof text and say, well, I just don't have to love you. I just have to respect you. Or I don't have to respect you. I just have to love you as if you could do one without the other. So who loves? Everybody loves. Who respects? Everybody respects. So what is Paul getting at here? What is this deeper underlying idea that not only is about marriage, but also about your friendships with the people around you or the people you go to church with or that you work with? And is it possible that this whole passage is not even really just about a relationship in a contractually legally binding relationship that if you break it, someone's got to pay? What is this idea of following Jesus and experiencing eternal life here in the present, that we get to know someone in the healthiest, most life-giving way possible. How do we do that? When we go back and look at the culture in which this is written, I want you to remember that Ephesus is a church that is in the Roman Empire. This is not a Jewish city. This is, this is a Roman city. And in Roman cities, there's a very different understanding of uh, what life is supposed to happen. Did you know in this culture, um, the average marrying age for a man was in their mid-20s. The average marrying age for a woman was around 14. And so this is what's going on. And the people that are coming into this small little church, these little churches that he wrote to would have been about this size. 
that we are here. Small, small gatherings of people that we're coming together to do life and to talk about the way and how do we live this out and to actually live it out together. This is who he's writing with, and they're coming out of this culture trying to understand a different way of doing life in which we're loving God and we're loving each other the way that we love ourselves. And, and, and he's talking about this specific relationship in which many times, depending on kind of your economic status, are you a part of, of leadership or the aristocracy, this was a culture in which there were clear leaders defined and those who did not have that leadership did not have any, any power. Ultimately, power was at the very top in every institution in Rome and, and in their political empire, it was Caesar. Like no one usurped Caesar's power. And then he shared that with a few aristocratic families in which they were then the ruling class. And it would drop down even into their relationships and into their marriages as husbands were literally what we sometimes experience today in the modern Western world. Husbands are the everything. And wives are just lucky to be married. As we enter into this culture, Paul is trying to help them understand what does it look like for us to love each other the way Jesus has called us to love each other and he uses language that they would understand but he also uses principles that jesus himself had propagated over and over and over again it was a very different culture it was a very different time women didn't have a voice publicly they didn't have a voice politically your value would have been seen in raising children and bearing children and cooking a hot meal and all of the stereotypes of the early 1900s that the women's suffrage movement fought against. This was Rome in which he is writing. And interestingly, Paul's own words are used to try to propagate that type of system even today, even when that, I believe, is not Paul's intent at all. If you wanted to divorce the husband, all he had to do was give your dowry back and just leave. In fact, when we look through Ancient Near Eastern Jewish culture, when we look through the church's role in the church, many of the things that come up are in in, around marriage are in relation to protecting the least of these, or protecting the vulnerable, protecting the powerless. And in many of those cultures, it meant protecting the wife. So into this world of this male-dominated, power-dominated, this place where you only had power or you only had influence based on gender and position, this teacher's teaching who has been nailed to a cross enters into that world and says, this is not what life is supposed to be about. And everything you've ever heard from the prophets to uh, the early literature of, of the Torah, all of it points to this idea that we are supposed to love each other in a way that builds each other up and encourages each other and makes life good, the way life was supposed to be once upon a time in the garden when life was just great. A life that we look forward to one day when we die, when we hope that heaven's going to be a place without any sorrow or heartache or sadness or nothing goes wrong we never get a bad doctor's report you know everybody's happy we're happy we never fear anything we hope one day when we die we're going to get that but 
But what about right now? Because Jesus was more concerned with life right now than he was with life after you die. So how does the way enter into this culture? How does Paul enter into this culture where these families are sitting like you are around him and he's trying to help them understand what is the way based on the context of your culture? And he uses an analogy that just breaks all of our assumptions about what it means to submit. And he says throughout this, I'm talking about Christ in the church. I'm talking about Christ in the church. I'm talking about Christ in the church. So in all likelihood, if we get Christ in the church right, your marriage goes right. If we get Christ in the church right, your friendships go right. If we get Christ in the church right... The relationships with that family member that like, you know, you've avoided at every Thanksgiving meal for the last five, ten years, and you're going to avoid them again this year, that even could go right. When we get this idea about Christ in the church, Paul says it over and over again, and he does it all in the context of a, a, a letter in which he has begun this section saying, be imitators of God, love one another. And then in verse 21 Submit to one another. And I would just say to you, the only way we get to a male-dominated, it's my way or the highway, is to ignore the entire context of this whole passage and to ignore the entire context of the whole Bible. So what does it mean? For, For us, when I say that, submission, how submission seems to us today when we read this passage the way i grew up in a very conservative um, religious background even though in our family my parents never practiced it in this way i grew up in a very conservative background that submission meant one has authority one has opinions and one follows their lead it's not a totally wrong idea of what submission is But when we look at what he's talking about, what Paul is saying about Christ in the church, we find that when Jesus submitted himself to the church, he gave his life. See, in in the idea of a modern Western um, understanding of submission, submission is always understood from the perspective of the one who is being submitted to. You're submitting to me. I have power. I have authority. I have headship. My opinion matters. What I want matters. If we have a disagreement between me and Deidre, well, she'll just go with whatever I want because it says right there, I get what I want. Then, yeah. Y'all who know Deidre are laughing, right? But in the idea of an ancient Near Eastern, in the ancient Near Eastern world, submission is the idea of placing yourself under someone else. See, there's something very different in saying, you submit to me, and me saying, I submit to you. There's something very different in those two perspectives. When we come to a marriage and we have one person saying, I am submitting to them. It's very different when someone else in that relationship, whether it be marriage or any other one, saying, you will submit to me. It's a very different understanding. And as we bring in Christ in the church, we find that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, what Jesus is constantly saying is, place others above yourself. 
Submit to one another as Christ submitted to the church. What does it look like to be in a relationship where two people are committed to submitting to each other? I can tell you it's a very different relationship where one person is committed to submitting and one is committed to being submitted to. Very different relationships. Only one of those is being ascribed to here. And it is described as Christ's relationship with the church. Submission literally means to put under your interests, your ideas, your opinions under someone else's. Jesus addresses submission and value in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26. He says when he's talking about who will be great, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are the words of Jesus. I have come to serve. I have come to submit. These are not always ideas we're comfortable attributing to Jesus because He's the Savior of the world. He is God. He's, as we understand the Old Testament, He is also Creator. And one day He is returning. How could He submit to us, a broken people in which He had to give His life for us? And yet for Him, there is something about the way of living life that submitting to others is a core value of a good life. A good life. In John 14, verse 28, Jesus says, You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you will have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, which will mess with your Trinitarian theology. If three are equal, Jesus yet submitted himself to one in which he also would say he is equal to God, but yet he doesn't count that equality as something that he should strive for because there is something that happens in the life of a person who chooses to place others above themselves. And I would just submit to you, this is why people reject Christianity. This is why people should reject Christianity if they're going to, not over something we misunderstand, misinterpret, or subject others to, but instead let them reject it for the thing that it actually is. And in this regard, it is about the way we do life with other people that elevates others above ourselves. And it is one of the most uncomfortable things you will ever endeavor to do within your life, especially in a culture that says it's all about you Because a person who believes the idea that it's all about them will never submit to another because it's all about them. Most of us will live our lives if we don't ever come to a crisis moment of recognizing that it doesn't work, of believing that we are the main characters in the story of our life and everything is about us. You all are actually here for my story so I can leave and tell people how many people were there to listen to me teach and it was all about me and my delivery and all of those things. See, that is the very natural way we grew up in this world looking at life. That's why when we walk in the store and we're frustrated because other people are in line in front of us and going slow, don't they realize the main character has somewhere to be? And all these supporting actors and actresses are in the way? 
worst marriages on the planet are marriages that have someone like that in it. Because marriages were never meant to be one person getting their way and the other person always giving it. That is not the idea being propagated by Paul. It's certainly the way this passage has been used in the past. Those were the words of Jesus. If you're going to be great, you have to be a servant. If you're going to be great, you have to be the slave. It's a very upside-down way of viewing value in this world that views value still today based on position, power, ethnic status. And yet Jesus said, ah, I view value on the ability for someone to love others. That's where I place value on someone. This is Paul when he addresses submission and value in other places. If we're tempted to still take Paul out of context, he says in Galatians 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal. We have all equal value. We're equally good. We're equally bad. <laughs> we're equal. Why in the world would Paul say that and then come and say, except in marriage? Why would he do that? Well, because he wasn't married. That may have been why he said, you know, you ought to not get married if you don't have to. But that's another conversation. Again, we go back to, to verse 1 and 2 of this very chapter. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we continue in verses 18-21, which Kim read, be filled with the Spirit and submit to each other. These are the things Paul is saying. How do we get to the place where we now believe that is in every situation except in marriage? It's everywhere. We're equal everywhere except in marriage. I think one of the things Paul's trying to say to this congregation in Ephesus is simply a very, very simple statement to them. If we're going to be the way in this community and in this culture, be different. Be different. If we're going to follow Jesus in this time and in this place, be different. Demonstrate mutual love, mutual respect, and mutual submission. See, this is the calling of following Jesus. This is not the calling of getting married. This is the calling of life. We had a, we had a good conversation last week in our, in our new Baymont group about um, eternal life and the way that they were talked about, again, in ancient Near Eastern culture versus today where eternal life for us is almost um, entirely viewed as life after death, and yet eternal life, um, almost with, without exception in the Old Testament, Jesus begins to talk about it differently in the New, but without exception in the Old Testament, eternal life is talked about as the quality of life in which you're living. Jesus is literally saying, if you want to have eternal life, love others like yourself. If you want to have the highest quality of life, love others like yourself. If you want to have the best marriage possible, love your spouse like yourself. If you want to experience the things that only God can do in your relationships, submit to one another 
put yourself under someone else. Now, some of you have tried this, and it can be a frustrating experience when you're trying to submit, but the other person in this scenario is not. They're happy with your submission. And this has created for families, and it is not just women who find themselves in this situation. There are absolutely men who find themselves in this situation as well. When one person is committed to submitting and one person is committed to being submitted to, I think this is one of the reasons Paul said, listen, if you're living with somebody and they're not living this out, stay and give them an example of submission. And if they send you away, leave. Because you can be in a very unhealthy, damaging relationship when one person's committed to living this out and one person is not. You must in those moments decide, my submission is like Christ and the church. It is not between me and my spouse. Friendships are a little easier to walk away in this regard. And we actually are in two weeks going to talk about toxic relationships because we can totally see this idea of submission and loving each other like ourselves, that we have to subject ourselves to toxic people nonstop. And there are times that you have to create boundaries. <laughs> we are going to talk about toxic relationships, but not before next week we talk about um, trust issues, attachment issues. Why do, we, why do these things fall apart anyways? And most of the time it's because something's broken inside of us and we begin to see what's broken inside of someone and not just their behavior. We begin to learn how to have true relationships even with messy people. But we need to have a couple of conversations about that. Headship is something that is being demonstrated to the husbands in this congregation but what Paul is doing is he is standing their understanding of headship on his ear. Because their understanding of headship is, well, she only has any value in this world through me. Because that's the culture in which they're living. And yet what Paul is saying is, yes, you are the head of your family, just like Christ is the head of the church, and he gave himself up for her. So if you're going to be the head, the head is in submission to the one that you're the head over. Who's going to be great? The one who's up here? No, the one who is down here. Who's going to be first? The one who's up here? No, the one who's down here. This is how Jesus would talk about it. You're going to be head? The head's not up here like they are in culture. The head is here. Sacrificing, serving, giving, submitting, loving, respecting. This is the idea of Christianity. This is Christianity. Like, this is it. Uh, so many times we, we want to make it about making sure we go to heaven, but that's not really what this is all about. This is about right now, how we live our lives. And in every writer of Scripture, of course there's an individual component between us and God, but this is lived out and demonstrated to a world to redeem the world by the way we live with each other. And there are some relationships that are going to teach you this lesson more than others. And I will tell you, marriage will teach you this lesson more than friendship. And kids will teach you this lesson more than marriage. And it's not that you're valued because you're married. It's not that you're valued because you have kids. 
But there is something about having kids that you're constantly putting the needs of someone else before yourself. It is the most brutal training ground in learning to love others that is out there. And you know what I mean, right? You're trying to get some work done. And the baby's crying. You're not working. You're trying to sleep. And the baby's crying. You're not sleeping. And what are you going to do? I mean, you're going to go to jail if you don't feed them. (laughs) I mean, hopefully you have more motivation than that. But you know what I'm getting at. There are some relationships that are really a training ground for loving others and coming under others. Now, interestingly, Paul's going to follow up this section on marriage talking about parenting. And the only thing we get there is children honor your mother and father because they're, they're trying to teach you this stuff. And this all falls under the umbrella of be imitators of God and love each other. That's the umbrella of this whole passage. Giving ourselves up for others is a choice, a sacrifice, and a gift both to the one we submit to and to ourselves. When we talked about Genesis and we talked about um, when Eve is created and this idea that a husband will leave his parents and a wife will leave her parents and the two will cleave together the the imagery on that word cleave is is this you know this kind of embracing coming together holding on to each other but we discovered that that word actually is it means um in butchered means to support each other through opposing force it's the idea of two boards leaning against each other and supporting one another not just this idea of this loving embrace we never argue. We have we we agree on everything. We're just always in love. We're just I mean I'm just I get as many butterflies in my stomach after 50 years of marriage and the first day I saw you. That's the idea we get in our current culture. But in the in the biblical culture in the Old Testament, it's it's the idea that even in tension, two people come together and they support one another. This idea of marriage I'm proposing is the idea that you outsubmit each other. What does that look like? Now, I know what some of you look like. You decision makers in the room, it looks like a conversation trying to decide where you're going to go eat dinner, right? Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? And it's just this maddening cycle of no one ever making a decision. And certainly you can get to that point, but... The idea is I'm looking, and remember our definition of love? Not feeling or attraction. Our our definition of love is is an action, a committing to an action that benefits the well-being of someone else. What would it look like in our marriages if if we were all committed to action in a way that that promotes the well-being of the other? What would happen in our marriage if we did that? What would... what better, what would happen if both people were doing that for each other and then you start really getting a picture of Christ in the church and you start really getting a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. First will be last and the last will be first. 
It is a choice. It is a sacrifice. And it is a gift. So how do we live this out? How do we do this? There's a reason that we say um, physicians practice medicine. Right? We should say we practice marriage. Practice it. Because there's no formula. There are days I'm really good at this. Like I'm just, I'm Johnny on the spot. Thinking about Deidre. What I need to do for her. There are things I'm not. And there are times she asks me to do something and I really don't like it. Now, to be sure, uh, same, same goes for her. There are days she's Johnny on the spot. Or I don't know, what's, what did you say for a girl? What would you Jill, okay, Jill on the spot. That does that sounds that doesn't sound appropriate, but uh, you know what I mean. There are days we have good days. There are days we have bad days. The worst day is the day that you decide I'm not going to practice it. I'm not going to try. I'm, I'm going to give up. It's just the way I am. You know, when we started Journey. We we had a tagline, and it was hugely popular. A lot of churches did it. And it was just come as you are. Now the idea is the same. We want anybody to come no matter where they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what their background is, no matter how broken they are, no matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter. Like you come, you just, because you're made in the image of God. You are meant to be loved and valued. God loves you and values you. We do too. Come as you are. But what we found was that a lot of people that were the most excited about come as you are was the idea of stay as you are. And so we stopped using it. Because the worst thing you can do in life is to stop growing. The worst thing you can do in marriage is to stop growing. Or in parenting. Or in your job. When you decide, I'm done. I've done all that I'm going to do. I've done all the growing, all the trying, all the practicing I'm going to do. I'm done. Well, you are done. But this is... Part of what it means to grow. This is what discipleship is. This is what sanctification is. This is the practicing it. And sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we have to come back. And when we get it wrong, Jesus also says, you ought to forgive them when they get it wrong. And when someone gets it wrong with you, you ought to forgive them. And then the disciples ask the question the rest of us are asking in the midst of being wronged. Man, how many times, Jesus? I mean, come on. Every time. He didn't say that, but that's what he meant. Every time. The truth is is that forgiveness is a gift to yourself and to the other person, but it is a gift to yourself. Who's the person in your life right now you can't forgive? You know who they are. Before I finish the question, their face flashed in your mind. What would it look like not to have that happen? Not to have that flash in your eye. Not all that emotion that comes with it. Not that feeling of being wrong. Not that anger. Not that hurt. Not that pain. What if that didn't constantly come to your mind? Is forgiveness worth it then? How do we live this out? We we practice it. We talked about um, one of the most basic ways of dealing with kind of coming out of this post-pandemic world is being intentional about life. 
Be intentional. Be disciplined. A lot of Scripture talks about being intentional and disciplined. Not just go do whatever. Be intentional. We can do this in our relationships too. We can intentionally submit. And often what we can do is that we can begin to expect for others what we expect for ourselves. Well, this is how I want to be treated. We'll offer that to them. What would that look like? As we leave today, as we just as we get ready to, to close out on our, our, our closing song, um, I would challenge you that in your marriage, begin to think differently. You may have come up in a very different type of headship model than Christ in the church. You, here, here's the thing. For some, for some of the guys in the room, if your buddies find out you're doing the church and Christ model, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to make fun of you. And Jesus said so. He said, you live this out and you will be persecuted because of me because I'm the one who told you to do it that way. I just encourage you as we, as we continue to talk about relationships, sure, this is highly applicable to marriage. It's the reason that Paul's talking about it in the context of marriage, but this is highly applicable to every relationship you have. And one of the things we're supposed to do here as a church body is we're supposed to practice this here. We're supposed to practice. Headship is serving. Headship is putting others above themselves. Whenever we, we decide, am I, am I going to serve at this place? Well, I hope so because serving is living out our faith. Well, I don't like in the ways that you have opportunity to serve. Okay, serve somewhere else. Serve. Serve. On the days that we wake up on Sunday morning, like I did this morning, and it was 31 degrees outside, and my uh, my bed is very warm. And my, I ha- we have this, it's like a really thin, um, it's not even a comforter, it's like kind of a fake uh, it's not even, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it's really trendy, but I, I don't know the name of it. But it, anyways, it's super warm, really thin, perfect. I love it. Snuggle in. <sighs> I'm staying here this morning. I mean, I literally thought about that this morning. So if you all thought about it this morning, I thought about it, and I had something to do this morning, right? I remember when Deidre and I did not have to go to church because we were on staff. And that was seminary, which was 22 years ago. And we would wake up on Sunday morning. I have a point, by the way. We would wake up on Sunday mornings, and often after a long week of work and studying and homework, and I still had more to do, um, I would just be like, (sighs) I just would... I'd be fine to stay home today. and But we would go. We would go because those were my friends. Those were my friends. And you know what? They, 
some of my friends are going to show up and they're going to prepare something. And some of them are going to some are going to sing and some are going to pray and some are going to teach and some of them are just bringing donuts. I, I know I know Bob's bringing donuts and so um, I'm going to go eat one of Bob's donuts so he knows he didn't bring them for nothing. See, when, when we start looking at people, not in how they fit in the story we want to tell, but that we're a part of their story, it changes how we act. It changes how we live. And in some ways, we get back to the life that Jesus gave His life for and that God created us for in the garden, but sin came in and screwed it up. You know, you'll... One of the th- when I began looking at the fall differently and began looking at the curse differently, you know, women were cursed and after the fall, it's all Eve's fault and now her husband's going to lord over her. Like that wasn't a curse. Like God didn't do that. He's just, what God was saying was now that you've entered into a, a world in which you're loving yourself more than others, that's what's going to happen. And that is what happened. And sometimes it's not the husband, sometimes it's the wife. You know, we've got it goes all different ways now. We've got some really strong female leads in families and some really strong male leads in families. And it's much more um even's not the right word, but different today than it was even fifty years ago. I encourage you when you leave here today, figure out how do I practice this. In your marriage, I want you to walk out of here today and I want you to think about how do I practice this? When you go to work and that boss is a jerk, how do I practice this? When you show up at Walmart and the cell lines, I mean, you're already upset because you're self-checking out and, and now it's long and you can't even get to yours. And now not only that, you continued the line, but now someone started another line going, you know what I'm talking about, right? Y'all don't have those thoughts? Okay, y'all follow her down the road than I am. But I sometimes have those thoughts. How do I practice this there? Thanksgiving dinner's coming. And some of you are already trying to figure out how to get the flu before Thanksgiving. So you can't go. Because you know what the conversation is going to be like. How do you practice this? How do you practice this? I want to encourage you to find a way to practice it, bring it to your mind, and to remember the first will be last, the last will be first, the greatest among you will be your servant. The servant will be the greatest among you. Would you pray with me?